to this forthright radio for March 3rd, 2021. I'm Joy LeClaire. After the global financial crisis of 2008, with all the repercussions to our economy and harm to individual lives, not a single high-level corporate executive went to prison. Some claimed it was rank politics protecting them. But was there more to the story? With us for the full hour is Columbia University Professor of Law, John C. Coffey Jr., whose book, Corporate Crime and Punishment, The Crisis of Under-Enforcement, was published in 2020 by Barrett Kohler. Professor Coffey has won many awards for his writing, his work in corporate governance, and exploring the interests of activist investors. He is a recognized expert on both the Security and Exchange Commission, the SEC, and the Delaware Court of Chancery, the forum in which the vast majority of American commercial disputes are heard. We spoke with him on March 1st, 2021. Welcome to Forthright Radio, Professor John C. Coffey, Jr. Thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. In your most recent book, Corporate Crime and Punishment, The Crisis of Under-Enforcement, which is published by Barrett Kohler, you note that there has been much discussion since the financial crisis of 2008 of the political aspects of the failure of senior executives of major banks and financial institutions to be prosecuted, much less convicted, for their responsibility of the harms to so many people that ensued. And you you state that that is not the focus of your book. Please share with our listeners what is your focus and your purpose in writing it. Okay. Well, I do think there is a major problem that allows giant corporations and even more, their senior executives, to escape any threat of criminal liability. Let me explain this as simply as I can. A familiar pattern out over and over in corporate prosecutions over the last 10 years. A particular U.S. attorney's office begins an investigation of what he thinks is major corporate misconduct. Let's take an example. It might be that uh, he suspects that the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act has been violated as the company has paid bribes in seven or eight foreign countries to encourage the sale of its heavy equipment, products, planes, computers, or whatever. He will quickly find that this investigation will overwhelm his logistical capacity and staff. He's going to find that he needs to investigate many different transactions on two or three continents, thousands of documents, millions of emails, and at least 50 or more persons, sometimes speaking seven, eight different languages, need to be questioned at length. And yet the typical U.S. attorney couldn't possibly spare more than three or so assistant U.S. attorneys and possibly somebody from the FBI that they can latch on to. This produces a mismatch. On the other side, the defendant will be able to hire local law firms in every country because it's worried about very serious consequences. And those people will be able to argue over every transaction in the local language and try to explain that there is no problem. This sort of pattern is again and again stopped prosecutors. And as a result, they have fallen back on one technique. It's not the ideal technique at all, but necessity is the mother of invention. They will begin to structure a deferred prosecution agreement. Now, what is that? Sometimes called the DPA for short. 
they will approve the idea of defense of the, the company, the corporate defendant, hiring one international law firm that will conduct a detailed investigation because they don't have the manpower to do it themselves. And that investigation will be used as the basis by which they work out a settlement, which may involve a significant criminal fine, but it won't involve any criminal conviction. The prosecution agreement will provide for a probationary period, one year, two years, even longer sometimes. And during this period, they have to obey the law. But at the end of which, if they don't get convicted again in that period, everything dissolves. And there are no further consequences other than that they have paid a large fine and they have acknowledged their complicity. The problem in all this, and this is the key problem, is that the U.S. government and individual U.S. attorneys are farming out, in effect outsourcing, the traditional investigatory work that used to be done by prosecutors and is now going to be done by a law firm, an excellent law firm, but one hired by the defendant. And defendants, uh, when they hire counsel, usually get what they want, a counsel who is sympathetic to their aims, which may be to give them an actual factual report, but not to implicate anyone higher up in management. Look at it this way. When we have this kind of outcome, it may be that there is a $1 billion, $2 billion, $3 billion fine, but that is essentially corporate managers using shareholders' money to buy immunity for themselves. And as long as I can buy immunity with someone else's money, I'm going to be very strongly tempted to do so. Now, that's the basic pattern. I could give you examples and show you just how expensive this is, but that is the core problem. Sometimes political cowardice is there. Sometimes political favoritism is there. But there are plenty of honest prosecutors who really want to convict the guilty, very much so, but they run into this logistical mismatch under which they can't conduct investigations on three continents, eight countries, and in eight different languages with a staff that only speaks English. Am I making myself clear? Oh, yes. And we will get to the specifics later in the interview, but let's just stay right now with the overview. We've reported in the past that what we're currently experiencing is rather ahistoric, noting that in the savings and loan scandals of the late Reagan era and the Enron and World.com scandals of the early George W. Bush era, executives were held to account. So those are two Republican administrations which made the lack of prosecutions under the Obama administration particularly notable. So first, please remind our listeners about those earlier situations and then compare them to the 2008 crisis and why, in your opinion, were they handled so differently? Because, as you've just explained, the deferred prosecution agreements make sense because of limitations within the personnel and budgets of the various agencies. Wasn't that also true in those earlier times? You make a very good point that we do have a history of being able to prosecute at least smaller corporations. Savings and loans, back during the savings bank failures of the 80s and on, 
were essentially very small institutions with the headquarters staff of no more than five or six different officers. In that kind of world, everyone knew everyone and everyone knew all of the knowledge that was involved in whatever decisions they were making. We're now talking, though, about a different scale. When you talk about the major decentralized corporation that has international operations on many continents, you've got a world of very fragmented decision-making authority. It's much harder to put together the parts, and the person at the top doesn't know. He's quite remote from what's going on at much lower levels in a foreign country. And also, the lower-level executives don't want to tell the top just what risks they may be taking. So that's the, the big difference between the savings and loans. You could have pointed to Enron and WorldCom in 2001 and 2002, which were the last major wave of corporate criminal prosecutions. But there the company was fundamentally falsifying its financial statements. And the CEO and the CFO could be convicted because they were making those decisions. When you're talking instead about practices for bribing local officials or Take other major cases, the opioid cases where 400,000 people have died from opioid overdoses. But in those cases, you were pushing this use of very, very dangerous opioids, opioids for very modest illnesses like back pain. That was being done by aggressive salesmen, tolerated or encouraged by those at the top. But it was hard to get responsibility to be pointed up to the executive suite, particularly when you're doing this kind of study in which defense counsel may well want to get all the facts correct and will not lie, but he's not going to be overzealous in trying to get responsibility pinned on the senior managers. Let me give you a sense of how the costs of all this have gone up. We were talking earlier about the financial crisis in 2008. Now, that began with Lehman Brothers' failure, and Lehman Brothers deserved to be investigated very closely. No one did. Why not? Because Lehman was bankrupt and even they couldn't afford to pay for an investigation. So that the U.S. attorney put minimum staff on it. The SEC didn't even interview the senior financial officers of uh, Lehman Brothers. What did happen was that the bankruptcy judge had before him the largest bankruptcy in U.S. history. And he said, I got to have some kind of study. And he went out as the bankruptcy court and hired a law firm to be the bankruptcy examiner and conduct a very thorough study. Now, that law firm, Jenner and Block in Chicago, an excellent firm, did do a fine study. It took them 130 attorneys over 14 months, and it resulted in their billing an hourly fee that came up to $53 million. That's totally beyond the scope of either the SEC or any U.S. attorney's office putting 130 attorneys on anything. They don't have 130 attorneys in the U.S. attorney's office. And paying $53 million, that's not the kind of budget that they or Congress will let them expend. But that is the logistical mismatch. And I think we have to deal with that, recognizing we need to bring some disinterested experts in. The problem is who selects those experts and how much judicial supervision do they get. That's where we get down into the specifics. But have I answered your question? There's a big difference between savings and loans, which were small and local, and an international corporation with very decentralized management. And would you say that that evolution of the what some call too big to jail is because of the 
changes in the late Clinton administration? I think that the focus on savings loans was quite understandable. They were they were making very dangerous decisions and violating the law, but it was possible to focus on them because you had everybody in one office and there was no difficulty about proving everybody knew the same facts. That can't be done when you're dealing with a foreign bribery investigation or where you're dealing with possible price fixing around the world. It does the information doesn't go all the way up to the top, and therefore the people at the top escape responsibility. And when the people at the top escape responsibility, you're going to get a continuing pattern of corporate crime. Well, speaking of foreign investigations, you do write about the HSBC negotiations that involved money laundering. Let's use that as an example. The interesting thing about money laundering is that no U.S. bank has actually been indicted for it. They managed constantly to convince prosecutors that it would destroy them to indict a bank for money laundering. And if you do indict a bank for money laundering, the statute says that the controller of the currency thereby is authorized to conduct a hearing to decide whether or not the bank should lose its corporate charter. Well, even if you conduct a hearing, it is very unlikely that any controller of the currency whose job is to monitor and protect banks from loss is going to destroy a bank and remove it from the competitive environment. Banks are huge institutions with trillions of dollars of assets and stock market value. But the risk that you could be subject to the loss of your corporate charter has caused U.S. attorneys to always shy away and not indict for money laundering even when they could. Instead, they have used other techniques. They sometimes indicted a small subsidiary because then that could be lost, although the controller of the currency hasn't taken away the charter of anyone. So I think this is a game, again, where the U.S. attorney needs the cooperation of the defendant. The defendant is only going to pay for this detailed investigation if he gets some assurances as to what the consequences would be. Now, at the very end of the Obama administration, they were embarrassed, politically embarrassed, by the fact that throughout all of the Lehman Brothers and 2008 financial scandals, not more than one, if at most one, corporate senior officer went to prison. I don't think anyone really who I'd call a senior executive went to prison as a result of the 2008 financial scandal from a Wall Street firm. That embarrassed them, and they came up with a new policy. This was known as the Yates Memorandum, after Sally Quinlan Yates, who was the Deputy Attorney General. And it instructed all U.S. attorneys that before they enter into a referred prosecution agreement, they have to be sure that they're getting all possible information about all the executives and that the prosecutor would consider the need for investigating and convicting individuals, not just the firm. That, I think, is the core reform, that we've got to shift our investigatory efforts and our prosecutorial efforts to getting individuals held accountable and putting more than the flunky on the street, more than the corporal or the sergeant or the lieutenant, but the major, the colonel, and the general before a criminal court when a major criminal episode has occurred. And there have been many of these episodes, whether you want to talk about opioids, drug losses, major crashes, Boeing is a recent example. All of these things, we have not gotten beyond the level of the junior lowest level officers. 
Well, look, I would think the following things are necessary to make this system honest and have real accountability. One is we've got to make all of these investigations occur under the general jurisdiction of a U.S. judge so that he is able to rule. About half of these cases now are no longer what are called deferred prosecution agreements, which are before judges, but they are non-prosecution agreements, or NPAs. And an NPA is just a contract between the prosecutor and defense counsel and the company with no judicial supervision. And I think you do need judicial supervision here. And particularly, I think we need authority in a federal court to reject a settlement that it thinks is too weak, too unfair, and doesn't get anywhere near the bottom of the facts. Doesn't get us a real descriptive, objective story about what happened. Instead, we just get a series of broad conclusions with no specific examples. So I would say giving judges authority, not letting defense counsel in effect, pick the law firm that will conduct the independent investigation. That just invites conflicts of interest. You need to understand that these kind of special investigations are probably the biggest growth market in the world of the large law firm. These things can be so lucrative that fees of over $100 million can get billed for a one- or two-year study. And that kind of investigation makes the people conducting them very interested in getting a reputation as experts who left behind satisfied corporations. They may, it may result in a very large fine, but no one points up their fingers to the executive suite and say those people were responsible. They did it. And this evidence shows that. Instead, we've never gotten that high. I think if the prosecutor had the ability to pick or at least substantially influence the choice of counsel for this investigation, who will conduct the deferred prosecution agreement investigation, I think you'd get better data and maybe a more balanced presentation. That's, that would also be a big change. Now, there are many ways to reduce the cost of corporate investigations. I think, for example, the most promising way was much greater use of whistleblowers, Whistleblowers are there. They often are more than ready to testify, but they're never asked. Right now, although whistleblowers have gotten a lawful lot of use by the SEC and one or two other federal agencies, only a handful of agencies, three or four, have the ability to reward the whistleblower with a portion of the criminal fine or other penalty that is paid. So that if the U.S. attorney conducting a criminal case could encourage whistleblowers to come in and tell them what really happened by telling them they would be probably given immunity and they would be given a percentage of the fine. See, if the SEC gets a whistleblower who gives them new information that leads to a fine imposed by the SEC, the SEC is required by law to pay something like 30% of the fine that they recover to the whistleblowers who gave them the information. That is a very effective system. It doesn't cost the taxpayer anything because the fine comes from the corporation. And instead of going into the federal debt by paying it to the Treasury, you pay 70% of it to the Treasury and 30% of it gets paid by the SEC to the whistleblowers that gave them that information. If you do that similarly at the U.S. attorney level, I think you'll get a lot more evidence a lot more cheaply and will be less dependent upon the total use of an outside law firm with somewhat conflicted incentives. 
And of course, the SEC stands for Security Exchange Commission. We have to be careful with our alphabet soup. Let's go back just a little bit to what you were talking about, the needs of judges in these cases. You have a chapter or a part of your book called Judicial Revolt and Its Suppression. And you, you share with us about Southern District Court Judge Jed Rakoff, He took the unusual, for a judge, action of writing a New York Review of Books article called Why Have No High-Level Executives Been Prosecuted? And he actually tried to... Well, why don't you tell us what he tried to do and how he got shot down? Yes, well, he did, and that's that's one of the reasons that motivates the book like this. He found that the settlement that was brought him by defense counsel involved both the basic insolvency of Merrill Lynch, which was quickly picked up by Bank of America, and earlier the insolvency of some other major banks, Citicorp. In both of those cases, he was very dissatisfied with a report that told him nothing. And he said, this report, I'm required to find, to approve a settlement, that this is a fair and reasonable settlement. And this is neither fair nor reasonable, and I'm just being blinded as to what's going on. They appealed up to the Second Circuit, and the Second Circuit said, these kind of matters are left to prosecutorial discretion. And therefore, the prosecutors can have what they want, and the judge is hereby ordered to approve the settlement. Well, reluctantly, he did. And then he wrote his long piece suggesting that it was very dissatisfying to the goals of criminal justice that no one at all in a major, major legal and financial crisis, all of 2008, had gone to prison, even though there was evidence that uh, very risky decisions were being made that may have violated the law. So I agree with you that Judge Rakoff got a lot of uh, attention for this, and I think he made a very wise decision in doing what he did. But the message to other judges were, if you intervene too far, you'll get shot down by the appellate courts. Now, Judge Rakoff was doing that in a civil matter before the SEC, but other judges have done it and rejected deferred prosecution agreements and have been overturned by the courts that have said they have no authority. Here, I think Congress should give them more authority. There are some constitutional issues here, but I think if Congress said that we don't want a deferred prosecution agreement without the judge conducting at least some overview and approving the settlement is within the boundaries of a reasonable settlement, I think that that would be accepted by both courts, prosecutors' offices, and the judiciary. And that is the ongoing tension we never seem to get away from in this country of the executive branch versus the other branches of government, and it seems increasingly that the judicial branch is deferring, even in their own bailiwick, uh, to the executive branch. Am I overstating that, or is that pretty much what's going on? I think the judiciary has not been given a chance to occupy their normal supervisory role. There is a settlement being brought to them by the prosecutor, by the corporation, and it involves charges of criminal misconduct that may or may not have been investigated thoroughly. I think the court should be able to ask some searching questions. I don't suggest that judges are deeply suspicious of prosecutors or the Justice Department, but I think they do want honest, objective questions to be answered. 
you also mention in your book corporate crime and punishment the crisis of under enforcement the tension between some of the agencies and the judiciary for example the uh, security and exchange commission and the judiciary and and that what you're proposing or what is happening with the deferred prosecution is this outside company chosen by the defendants to investigate and that it makes some of the personnel in the age of the federal agencies feel disrespected would you talk about that dynamic briefly well there are several parts of, of this problem the sec has to process a tremendous number of cases. They have a huge volume of cases, and they have a limited staff, and they have a limited budget. They, therefore, permit a settlement under which the defendant neither admits nor denies the charges. That's quite unusual. In a criminal settlement, even a deferred prosecution agreement, the defendant admits that he engaged in certain activity. There'll be a report attached to the deferred prosecution agreement in which the defendant admits the charges, but all of those charges, in fact, go up in smoke and dissolve once you serve the probationary period. In the SEC kind of case, there is no admission at all by the defendant, and the defendants want that because it protects them from class actions and civil liability cases brought by the private bar. Judge Rakoff thought that was not a reasonable basis, that the public had some right to know what the government thought had happened, and they weren't learning even what the government thought had happened. Instead, they were getting this rather hypothetical fairy tale in some cases, which didn't describe why things were done. That was one of the reasons he refused to approve the SEC settlement in the Citicorp and the Bank of America cases. Okay, that's one of the areas that we could reconsider. I'm more concerned with the criminal system than the SEC and its uh, approach to neither requiring that you admit nor deny. But again, we have some strange deviations from the normal world of litigation when we allow the defendant to pay a billion dollars but neither admit nor deny the charges and not describe exactly what happened with any detail. And I was intrigued by a very, very small sentence that you had in your book, sir, that the Department of Justice is very decentralized. And you compared the U.S. attorneys to being like barons in the medieval era. Could you just describe that system to our listeners? I know it's a small part, but I think it really says a lot. I'm happy to explain. I think there'd be general agreement that the Department of Justice is a very decentralized agency in terms of the enforcement, in terms of criminal enforcement. There is, in each jurisdiction, at least one U.S. attorney. In a state like New York, there are four U.S. attorney's offices. There are at least three in California, northern, central, and southern. Each of those U.S. attorneys has generally been approved by the local senior senator of the same party as the president. And he has a certain political independence because he's appointed by the president, confirmed by the Senate, and has the support of at least the senior senator in most cases. In that kind of world, 
of a mid-level official in justice is not going to be able to dictate to him very easily. Yes, justice has manuals, justice has all kinds of rules, and most U.S. attorneys comply with them, but the, each U.S. attorney has a great deal of discretion, and each has his own agenda about what kinds of crimes he wants to push. It might be that in the Southern District of New York, there have been some U.S. attorneys very eager to push crimes like insider trading and various kinds of white-collar crime. In another jurisdiction, California, they may be more focused on immigration, bank robbery, something else. It depends on what the attitude and preferences are of the U.S. attorney running the individual office. And, of course, the uh, Southern District of New York has been in the headlines recently with the Supreme Court decision that uh, former President Trump's tax returns need to be handed over. And uh, yeah, let's, let's be careful. Let's be careful there, because that decision, the Supreme Court really authorized the district attorney of Manhattan, a state prosecutor, to be able to enforce his subpoena and get access to. And they now have gotten access to uh, former President Trump's tax returns. But that's a state official, not the U.S. attorney. The U.S. attorney for uh, the Southern District, Preet Bahara, was fired by President Trump when he uh, investigated too closely some of Mr. Trump's political associates. Uh, so there always is that problem that the president can remove U.S. attorney. The Supreme Court was deciding whether or not to enforce a subpoena that was delivered by the district attorney for Manhattan, Cyrus Vance. Well, thank you for that clarification. My mistake. Let's get into some specifics. Uh, you talk about the post-crash developments, and you you examine uh, Volkswagen, General Motors, Boeing, and Purdue Pharma. Since you've already mentioned about the 400,000-plus opioid deaths in the United States, let's focus on the Purdue Pharma case. How does this apply to your examination? What do our well, listeners need to know? I would point out that Purdue Pharma was the company that really originated and brought OxyContin to the market and has pressed it harder than anyone else. And they used a major international consulting firm, McKenzie, and McKenzie and they agreed to try to expand the market for OxyContin and get doctors to prescribe it for less serious problems like lower back pain or something else of that sort. Understand that OxyContin is probably about a 100 times more powerful than morphine, which makes it highly addictive. And that addiction problem, which has probably included millions of people in the United States, has produced many, many deaths. Now, in all of the investigations of Purdue Pharma, the senior executives, the true family that ran the firm, was never prosecuted. Ten years ago, several officers were prosecuted, but none of them got a jail sentence. They were all prosecuted for very, very low-level crimes. More recently, there has been a settlement because the civil claims against Purdue Pharma were reaching the trillion-dollar level, and they couldn't pay it off. So they have gone into bankruptcy, and the bankruptcy court has approved a settlement, and that settlement involves a plea bargain with the government under which they agree that they would pay up to $8 billion. The problem is Purdue Pharma doesn't have any money to speak of anymore. They're reduced down to a few million. And so although they have pled guilty to an $8 billion settlement, it's something of a, an illusion, something of a, a governmentally manipulated fraud so that prosecutors look like they've done a lot, but there is no money to collect that fine from. And 
once again, we have a major episode involving complex behavior because you have all kinds of parties involved in the opioid crisis. There are the drug stores, there are the drug mills, there are doctors who are getting fees for prescribing it too easily. All of this is a big network, and we haven't gotten any of the truly responsible individuals, at least at Purdue Pharma. There, there was a very successful prosecution up in Massachusetts, I would point to that, involving a different company. Well, I was going to point out to other major prosecutions where you have a major pattern of behavior all around the world. And the most recent one, this is something that's occurred since I wrote this book. It was entered into in the last days of the Trump administration. And it's a segment with Boeing. As most people remember vaguely, Boeing had this plane, the 737 MAX, which had two major air crashes, in one in Ethiopia and one in Indonesia, and something like over 300 people lost their lives. Now, both of those crashes appear to have been caused by a particular new device that Boeing had introduced called the MAC, which was designed to take control of the aircraft in certain weather situations and prevent it from being pushed off course by a strong wind shear. That, at least, was how it was described to the FAA. There has just been a settlement announced in which is acknowledged that the FAA was defrauded by employees of Boeing, that Boeing employees misinformed the FAA, didn't tell them that this new device, the MCAS, was going to be operative in all kinds of weather conditions, not just moments of strong wind shear. What was going on here? Boeing needed to market this plane to third world countries, to smaller sovereign airlines run by smaller countries. And to make it attractive, it had to convince those smaller countries that it was not necessary to retrain their pilots. Sadly, indeed tragically, it was very necessary to retrain those pilots because when the truth came out, it was found that the MCAS took control of the plane under many different circumstances and the pilots had no knowledge of quite what was going on and no training to deal with it. So that in the settlement, it's acknowledged that Boeing employees uh, not only misinformed the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration, as to how extensive the MCAS system was, but they actually managed to rewrite the description of the whole system. They were given by the FAA, a FAA report that was about to approve all this, but they edited it, took out lines, made it far less informative. The whole process left the world unaware of just how much danger there was with an untrained pilot using this system. And eventually, it was taken off the market because it was a very dangerous system. All of this, however, has produced another deferred prosecution agreement. That's not a single individual prosecution. Even though, and I can read you from this settlement, uh, it says, in so doing, this is right now from the, the report attached to this deferred prosecution, prosecution agreement. In doing so, Boeing employee one and Boeing employee two deceived the Federal Aviation Administration into believing that the basis upon which the FAA had initially agreed to remove certain information was quite different than really occurred. And by concealing MCAC's expanded operational scope from the FAA, Boeing, through these employees, impaired, obstructed, defeated, and interfered with the FAA's lawful functions. 
All of that is punishable by criminal offenses, but not a single individual was referred for any kind of criminal prosecution. This is, to my mind, a continuation. It's not just on Wall Street. It's large companies have a great deal of both sometimes political power and sometimes logistical problems because it's very difficult for a U.S. attorney to try to prosecute a case in Ethiopia and in Indonesia involving complicated plane crashes with all kinds of factual details. Instead, one more time, we get this deferred prosecution agreement with an overstated sanction. It wasn't really as severe as they said, but no individuals who were prosecuted. I could take you, too, to how the government overhypes these settlements. In the Boeing case, the penalty said the total penalty was $2.5 billion, but 75% of that was just money being paid by Boeing to its major customers, American Airlines, Delta, Southwest, uh, United, all of whom could have asserted their own claims without the government's help. Boeing had to get along with its major customers. The uh, only penalty here, criminal penalty, was only 10% of the total amount agreed to, and it's only the criminal penalty that can't be deducted. So all of the amounts that Boeing is paying minus the 10% criminal penalty are tax deductible. And a very small amount of this is going to the injured victims. It's basically going to the various airlines that dealt with Boeing. To my mind, this is the government not doing what should be done, not helping the victim or bringing the guilty to justice, but easing the problems of a major corporation that we needed to get back on track if the administration wanted to have the economy and the stock market rebound. Professor Coffey, you don't really address this in your book, but I would appreciate your opinion on this. For the average person, when they hear of situations like this and they compare the harm that has been done, whether it's 300-plus innocent airline passengers killed because of Boeing's decisions or 400,000 people who die of opioid overdoses, they, they know of all the people in prison for victimless crimes, and yet the people who are responsible for this incredible harm don't go to prison. Yes, Do you that, have any words for us? Uh, that's exactly what I'm pointing to. What I've been telling you is that so long as senior managers can buy immunity by paying billions of their shareholders' money to the government for a deferred prosecution agreement and put some dressing and some ornamentation on it so it looks like other good things are being done, we will not be threatening those who make the key decisions with the criminal law. And it's been a long time since we've seen an executive at a very large corporation. You have to go back to Enron and WorldCom before you see the CEO truly being held responsible. And those were decisions where it was very clear the CEO had designed the financial statements. So I think we have a problem, and I think the problem does require making sure that these deferred prosecution agreements be done by a truly independent counsel who should be chosen at least as much by the prosecutor as by defense counsel, and that a judge review everything and decide that it falls within the realm of what it thinks is a reasonable settlement. And even then, I think the number one priority 
of the Department of Justice in dealing with corporate crime should be to find a responsible executive. It may be only a lieutenant in some cases, but in many others, it's going to be a major, a colonel, or a corporate president. And I think we have to go up the ladder. And in a world in which this is a very profitable line of business for law firms, uh, they aren't going to be hyperzealous. They, as long as they are hired by defense counsel, are going to know what their role is, which is to conduct uh, an adequate study to show what happened, identify those at the ground floor. But no one is going to be hyperzealous about going up to the executive suite if they want to get hired a second time in another case. Well, you do address what policy levers could work. And one of the scenarios that you talk about is what you describe as the prisoner's dilemma. We clearly have read the book. I'm glad you found that. The prisoner's dilemma is an old problem in game theory about what happens if two prisoners are both isolated and unable to communicate, and the government authors each a good deal if they will implicate the other. But if both of them remain quiet, then it will be impossible to convict either. Now, the result is usually that if the government puts enough pressure, they'll both implicate the other. What I want us to do in structuring our approach to corporate crimes is to make the senior corporate executives and the corporation as an entity each have a strong incentive to implicate the other so that the mid-level vice president is told that if he will confess and implicate senior executives, he can get relative immunity. And similarly, the corporation has to be threatened with a severe enough penalty that it will hasten to try to turn in senior executives to save itself from truly damaging penalties. What those penalties are, I describe in the book. But the key idea is we've got to get the two sides, the corporate entity and its executives working against each other with incentives to turn in the other. If that happens, then the prisoner's dilemma will typically produce both sides turning in the other. Okay. Now, how do you do that? There are a number of ways that I discuss. One idea that I push, although it won't be easy to convince a legislature to adopt, is not imposing fines in cash, but imposing fines in stock. If you threatened a pharmaceutical company or a Boeing or someone else with the prospect that they might have to issue 20% of their stock, I call this the equity fine, and give it to a victim compensation fund to pay to the victims of their misconduct, whether it's an opioid case or an airplane crash, that penalty would be so enormous. 20% of their stock would be a penalty so high that you couldn't conceive of it in cash terms. But we don't dare impose these penalties in cash because it would produce severe externalities. Workers would get laid off. The bonds of the company would sink. Local communities would no longer have the corporation there to pay the local school taxes. There are lots of innocent groups that would suffer severe costs if we impose severe cash penalties on the corporation. But if we if we impose these penalties in stock, it has no impact on the innocent groups such as employees, creditors, bondholders, local communities. It would hurt the shareholders, but the shareholders today are very large, diversified institutional investors. And one of the most amazing facts we uncovered in doing this book is I took the reactions, the stock market reaction, to the 25 largest civil and criminal fines imposed against publicly traded companies. 
companies on the stock exchange. And if you look at the 25 largest fines that were imposed against these very large banks and other institutions, we find that on the day these record penalties are announced, the stock price of the company actually goes up. These companies may fear criminal prosecution, but what they're not fearing is the impact of a large fine on their stock price because the stock market has basically ignored these criminal fines and has basically sort of applauded the settlement and said, good, now everything's back to normal and the company can get back to business and do what it wants. And that's probably what's happening in many cases. But you just do not see the stock market respond with a strong negative reaction to even the strongest penalties. And I have pages in the book that show you the largest penalties and the most recent penalties. And in 90% of these cases, the stock market goes up on the announcement of the fine. That does suggest that whatever it is that corporations fear, it's probably not the cash fine. It's probably the stigma, the reputational loss, and the danger that an investigation may result in the indictment of some senior officers. We've got to change this and move to a world in which the principal goal of the prosecutor is to find some responsible officers who have to serve time for the kind of misconduct that cost many, many lives. So that's, that's the key idea of the book. It seems to me that related to the aspect of fines involving stocks rather than just monetary fines is one of the risk factors that you identify for the problems in the first place. And that is that senior executive remuneration involves stocks and that increases their risk-taking behavior. Could you expand on that observation, okay. please? Okay. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad you brought that up, and you have read the book carefully. I can see that. I think in many cases, we can't really show that senior officers knew about the crime 10 levels beneath them. What we can show is that they were willfully running a company that was not law-compliant. They didn't care about whether or not there were legal violations as long as they were not going to be personally liable. In that kind of world, we have to find an intermediate penalty. And I would say that one of the things we should do when we put a large corporation on into a deferred prosecution agreement is we have a probationary period. It may be three years. It may be five years. During that period, I think we should restrict the ability of that company to grant stock options to its senior executives or to otherwise use incentive compensation. We are not finding them. We are just saying that this kind of a special benefit, incentive compensation, cannot be awarded by a company that clearly has not been law compliant. Again, I want to distinguish between the law compliant company that's had a a seemingly negligent violation and the more recurrent story that we see again and again of a company that is not law compliant at all, that's had multiple convictions, multiple regulatory violations, and is going ahead so long as senior management isn't going to be personally held responsible. Well, I don't think you can convict senior management simply based on negligence. I think you've got to, but I think you can impose this kind of a sanction, a probationary condition 
on a company that has accepted a deferred prosecution agreement under which they are restricted in their ability to pay stock options and incentive compensation. It could be by a 50% margin, it could be by more, but something that makes that company have a strong interest in becoming law compliant. And if you had that kind of system, then middle-level officers are going to be very cautious. They don't want their friends and colleagues doing anything dangerous because it would affect all of them. There really has to be sort of a group guilt, a group of acceptance of responsibility that because the company committed crimes, the company is not going to be able to reward most of its employees with incentive stock options or other similar special benefits. That would deter. In the probationary period, you discuss how compliance plans should work, and you even talk about how they're kind of window dressing these days, uh, Potemkin compliance plans, you, you call them. What should they be? What I first of all think that if a company wants to be law compliant, it can be. There were companies that over a 50-year period had excellent reputations for law compliance. I would say the old GE. I know nothing about its current status, but the GE of the 80s, 90s, and up to the last couple of years was a company that emphasized law compliance probably more than any other large corporation. And it was known around the world that GE officers couldn't pay you bribes, they couldn't give you kickbacks, they couldn't violate the law because GE took law compliance seriously. I think they deserve credit and recognition for having done that. They, however, were the exception and not the rule. In the final few minutes that we have, Professor Coffey, you conclude the book, Rebalancing the Carrots and Sticks. Would you share some of your ideas in that rebalancing? Okay. What I said was that in the old days, prosecutors used uh, a, a mixture of remedies. They used carrots for law compliance and sticks for law violations. We are now moving to a system of only carrots and no sticks. Whatever you do, you're going to get a deferred prosecution agreement because the U.S. attorney can't afford to devote an extraordinarily large proportion of his staff to pursue one case. Therefore, he's going to give you a deferred prosecution agreement. I think that we've got to find ways to make individuals feel that they do fear, they do face a real risk of criminal prosecution, and that even if they don't themselves get prosecuted, there can be sanctions imposed on the company that will affect them, such as restrictions on incentive compensation. Okay? Now, what I would do specifically is I would make Congress, I would invite Congress to pass a new statute governing deferred prosecution agreements. It would preclude any kind of agreement that didn't have a judge supervising it. The judge would have to make findings that this settlement appeared to him to be within the ballpark of a reasonable settlement based on the facts he'd seen. And he would require the company to disclose most of the dirty facts, the dirty information about what had actually happened, so that we have greater transparency. We don't really have a good understanding of what was known and what was done in many of the major recent corporate scandals, whether it involves opioids or some or 2008 financial scandals. So I think we want to give more transparency, and that's the role of the judge in reviewing a deferred prosecution agreement. And I think we want to make the prosecutor feel that he will only be viewed as having been successful if he can bring charges against individuals. 
corporations don't make decisions, individuals do. And while there may be a big informal network, there were people making culpable decisions in almost all of these cases. So I also want to solve the manpower and the logistical problems. One way to solve some of the logistical problems is to expand on the bonus system is paid to whistleblowers. If you gave the U.S. attorney critical information, you should be incentivized to give him that information. It's much better if you buy it than if you have to go out and subpoena it and fight battles over subpoenas for a year. So if the government were to say that up to 30% of a criminal fine or some reasonable percentage could be paid by the prosecutor to those people who gave information that the prosecutor thought was extremely important to its successful prosecution, that doesn't cost the taxpayer directly. That's money coming from the corporation and it's going to go into the hands of whistleblowers in part. That would get you much more information and make it often the case that you could prosecute the company without using the deferred prosecution agreement. With respect to the civil agencies like the SEC, I think they could also hire plaintiff's attorneys from the plaintiff's bar and compensate them on a contingent fee basis. That is, if you don't have the manpower to bring this big case against a company for some kind of civil securities fraud, then you bring in a law firm, which you would direct and supervise. The SEC would be in total control, but would use an experienced law firm, which would get a contingent fee, which is how plaintiff's firms normally work. It might be equal to 25% of any settlement they receive. That amount would allow the government to vastly increase the number of attorneys that were working for its agenda, and they would have complete supervision over them. But it does tend to embarrass people at the SEC who see this as an implied rebuke. The problem is just that the SEC doesn't have near the manpower to deal with all forms of corporate and securities fraud that they do encounter. And there are ways to bring in the market to solve this problem by using plaintiff's attorneys who will be paid on a contingent fee basis, meaning you only get paid if you win. And that's a powerful motivator also. All right. Those are those are ways of dealing with some of the logistical problems in terms of changing the law. I think that the law can be changed in a number of areas. We could change significantly a doctrine called willful ignorance to convict someone criminally. You've got to find either that they knew what they were doing and knew the key elements of the crime or that they were deliberately willfully ignorant. They deliberately closed their eyes and looked away. I think that doctrine has to be updated a bit for the complex corporation setting. Uh, now, I don't want to have strict liability, but I do want people who know something's going on but deliberately ignore it. If you are a pharmaceutical company and you know that you are shipping millions of Oxycontin tablets to a small little drugstore in a remote county in West Virginia, you know that you're shipping millions of dangerous drugs to a drug mill. That's the kind of information that I think can support a willful ignorance kind of criminal prosecution with willful ignorance being equated with actual knowledge. Those are all just examples. We've basically run out of time, Professor Coffey. Final words for our listeners before we say goodbye. Well, thank you very much. Our guest today on Forthright Radio has been Professor John C. Coffey, Jr., law professor at Columbia University. His latest book, 
Corporate Crime and Punishment, The Crisis of Under-Enforcement, was published in 2020 by Barrett Kohler. The views and opinions expressed on Forthright Radio are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent those of this station's staff, members, board of directors, or contributors. And now a word to our sponsors, you, the listeners, or I should say us, because I, too, have been an appreciative listener and supporter since KZYX first came on the air more than 30 years ago. It takes a village to maintain a community radio station, which thankfully we have been able to do together all these years. And it's time once again to remind each other that each of us needs to do our part to sustain this increasingly venerable community institution. These days, reliable, relevant information is increasingly precious. I share with you now the voice of Sheldon Wolin from our 2009 interview. His final book, Democracy Incorporated, Managed Democracy, and the Specter of Inverted Totalitarianism. It can't be overemphasized that democracy depends so crucially on on access to new information and not just kind of staged dialogues of chosen candidates who run from A to B on television. It's a very, very difficult situation, and I don't know that the answers are very easy to come by. I think that KZYX, and there are other uh, public radio stations, although none that I have encountered is as good as KZYX from when I've lived in other parts of the country. But they're, they're sort of lonely voices. Gone, but not forgotten. Those were the words of Sheldon Wolin from our 2009 interview. When his final book, Democracy Incorporated, Managed Democracy and the Specter of Inverted Totalitarianism was published, even more relevant today. Sheldon Wolin died in 2015 at the age of 93. And not only was he a KZYX listener, but he was a longtime supporter of KZYX. So please do what you can to keep KZYX and Z thriving financially in order to be able to continue bringing us the news and cultural information so vital for our personal well-being and the well-being of our democracy. We can do our part by either phoning during business hours 707-895-2324 or go to the KZYX website anytime, and that's kzyx.org. Just click on the handy support button at the top of the page. Or you can always snail mail a check. The address is KZYX PO Box 1 Philo, California 95466. And we do thank you for your support. Till next time, this is Joy LaClaire. Signing out for now. This has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willitson Dukaya 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening.